Well, glad to be with you tonight, as Matt has said a number of times. My name is Trev. Uh, glad that you're here this evening. Glad that you've joined us. And uh, tonight, if you're a, a visitor, and I, I think, honestly, even if you're not a visitor, um, we're going to deal with a text this evening. And I said this last week because both, both of these texts have been like this. I call them thorny texts because um, just like uh, a, a rose bush has, is absolutely beautiful. Like this summer we were in Portland. We actually saw the rose garden apparently. And uh, it's absolutely beautiful. But I noticed that roses have these really sharp pointy things on them. And if you run really fast through them, you get all scraped up and, and you get all cut up. And so we don't want to run really fast through this text uh, I don't just want to throw this out there and then try and make some applications because I think people will get damaged on the way. What we want to do is, is take some time. I want you to kind of put your seatbelt on uh, tonight because there's really a lot of information that you're going to have to take in. But I think it will be well worthwhile. Um, I think it's important for us, as not just as, a, as individual Christians, but even as a church to deal with this rightly. Um, I, for one... Um, want to know what God actually thinks about me. I don't want to pretend that God is somebody who uh, I'd like to think he is. I'd like God to be able to speak for himself and tell me who he'd like to be known as. And I think our text does a good job of explaining to us um, what he's really like and who he really is. And uh, again, as Matt has already said, how he deals with our disobedience to him and his word. So if you want to go ahead and open the, your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7 and 8. Uh, Joshua is the fifth book of the Bible. So if you go to the very beginning of your Bible and turn right five books, you'll find the book of Joshua. Uh, you can make this even easier by finding in your app by typing in Joshua 7 and you will be there. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, raise your hand and Shauna will bring a Bible to you. Uh, she'd be happy to do that. Um, if that's your first Bible, go ahead and keep that Bible. Uh, we'd love for you to keep God's Word in your home. Uh, we also hope that you would read it. Uh, what I'm going to do here this evening is I'm going to work my way through the text. Sometimes it's really helpful to read through the text, but I think this text has it. We have enough distance from this text that if we don't kind of explain things as we go through them, it's going to be difficult really to pick up on, on the real teaching of this particular passage and I can't even read it without giving you some context of where we are in the series because I know some are new and some are forgetful uh, tonight and some just need the context and so where we are in a series on covenant is um, the reason why we've called it covenant is because very early in the Bible in the story of God the Bible is really the story of God very early in the Bible God gave a promise to a man by the name of Abraham and that promise was I will, I will bless you and I will bless people through you. And he said he would make, basically, he would make Abraham's family an enormous family. In those days, family means everything. To some cultures, that's still the case. Family means everything. And so by saying, I will give you a great big family was a huge blessing to Abraham. But he also said, families always need a place to live. And so he said, I will give you land. Then he said, I will make all people a blessing. 
I make you a blessing through all people. And so essentially, what I want you to do is, is even though that's a, that's a promise given at the very beginning of God's story, we are connected to it when we believe in Jesus Christ because the Bible actually says, by believing in Jesus, we are connected to Abraham's promise. I know it sounds crazy, but I want to kind of show you some of that tonight. That the blessings that God gave, the promises that God gave to Abraham actually we are also connected to. We receive blessings from God through believing in, in Jesus Christ who is actually connected to that promise. Now, it's called covenant because covenant is a, a special type of promise that really is a, it, it's a formalized promise that, that is much different than a contract. A contract is where you do one thing and someone else does one thing and if they break their end of the contract, then the whole thing's null and void. But a covenant is where someone promises regardless of what the other particular uh, party does that you will fulfill your side of the promise. And so God gave a covenant promise to Abraham that he's going to come good on. Because he's going to, in this book of Joshua, he's going to show them the land that he's going to give them. And so what's been happening so far is that, that the people of God have actually been basically, uh, for the most part, camped on the banks of what we would call the Jordan River. It's still called the Jordan River. I wanted to show you again um, where this is in particular in the, it would have been the ancient Near East at the time. But the people have been over here for quite some time. They've actually been wandering in the desert somewhere around over here. And they've kind of moved in and around this, this particular area. And they kind of settled right here. And here's the Jordan River. It goes north and south. It's in between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Jordan River, again, is, is very important, not for what it is geographically in terms of depth or, uh, you know, it's, it's not beautiful. It's not like the Columbia River that's very, very large and very picturesque. It's, it's kind of really dull and dreary in places, very shallow in places, but it borders countries. It still does, by the way. It's still a very important landmark and, and borders countries. And if you go across the Jordan, you're in a different country than you are on this particular side of the Jordan. So, the people of God have been kind of camped right in here. And last week's text, they've been told to go into, across the Jordan. They crossed it miraculously, by the way. And then they moved to a city called Jericho. Jericho's right there. It's very, uh, it's very close to this other city called Gilgal. Um, that's not the name of a toy uh, at Walmart, that's actually a city, Gilgal. I guess I'm the only parent here who would get that. But anyways, Jericho is, uh, has been already defeated. Jericho was a city that was miraculously defeated by Israel. Uh, they used very, what I would call, unorthodox military tactics to do so. Uh, God told them, uh, what I want you to do is to go into this city and instead of doing what you would normally do instead of normal warfare and going into the city, I want you to walk around the city and bring the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of a holy God, and you walk around the city, and after seven days, the city will literally crumble and fall. Now, again, there's always the question of why would a loving God ask people to go in and defeat uh, a complete culture group um, like the city of Jericho? They would have been known as Canaanites. 
Um, I actually tried to deal with that mostly in last week's text, so if you're very interested in that, I, I do deal with that at fair length. Um, but essentially, this is the end of a 430-year wait for this particular city to turn things around, and God said, you can't go into the land until, you have, until we've waited 430 years for these people to choose to repent. Now, that word's important. We're going to learn about it today. Um, so what's happening right now is the people are, are kind of systematically going to go in and they're going to knock off a number of these cities. Uh, just so you know, this was the way it was done. Warfare was very common at this time. Um, it was very natural. I, I think um, in some ways, the way Israel went about warfare was so unorthodox compared to the, uh, many ways. Man, many ways were very brutal. Many ways were very uh, inhumane and, and literally Israel uh, doesn't have the instructions to, to be inhumane. They don't even have the instructions to take the spoil from the city. Those are the normal rules of engagement in war. If you take over a city, you get everything in that city. Um, and, and Israel's instructions in chapter 6 were that they were to take the city. Yes, they were to destroy every person, and they were to burn the city to the ground. And that's a hard word for us, and that is somehow so disconnected to some of our experiences but if you know anything about what world news is going on right now you know that there, this happens throughout history it is not pretty and i don't think god takes any pleasure in this but essentially he simply said to the city your time has come and i'm going to do two things at once i'm going to judge you and i'm going to give you the land i'm going to judge jericho i'm going to give canaan the land or give israel the land i'm going to judge canaan and give israel the land i think i got that right Anyways, the city is called, it's, it's not A-I, it's A-I-E. Anyone say that? A-I-E? A-I-E? <laughs> I I, this morning I said it sounds like I'm, again, singing a children's song uh, when I say that, but that's actually the proper pronunciation of that. I want to give you a little idea as to what the terrain is like. Um, this, is, this, is, this would have been the Jordan River somewhere over here. It may actually be right there. I'm not totally sure. Uh, but this is that little plains area before you get to Jericho. This would have been where, from this particular angle, this would have would, what it would have been like looking out from Jericho. Uh, they don't really know where Ai is, is in terms of a city, but it's back somewhere in, in this mountain range. Mountain range. Um, that's what they would have called mountains. Uh, it's pr these cities are, are very strategic. They're up. They're up the hill, so you'd have to fight up the hill. Um, so, so there's a little bit of strategy there in terms of, of Israel basically kind of knocking off the key military sections um, of the country. Now, I know that was a lot of context, but it's important for the rest of what we, we study because when you start in chapter 7, what you see very quickly is in chapter 7, verse 1, that there's a statement made about how these people have acted. So in 7.1 it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now hold it right there. What are those devoted things? Again, this goes back to chapter 6 where in chapter 6, God says, I want you to take the city, but you're not allowed to take any of the spoil in the city. Those 
Any, anything of value that's taken can only be used in the temple of God. So all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the, the special items that could have been used, all of the metals, were actually to be taken and used to make things for, for future temple use. They were not allowed to take things personally. And right off the bat, we find that the people have disobeyed. That's what it says, the people have disobeyed. Even though it's one man, the text says, the people have disobeyed. So this one person's sin, this one person's disobedience of God's word, affects everyone in the community. What's, what's interesting is that when we think about sin, sometimes we only think about sin in terms of, of, of what is against the law. Like in our country. But God has particular things that He's laid out as His moral law. And so you can literally, you, can, you could do them in our country and not go to jail, but if you, if you disobey God's word, you are breaking His commandments. Like, for instance, um, if I called, th- there's, there's certain commandments that are, are not against the law, like committing adultery. It's not against the law to do it. It's against God's law to do it. Um, breaking the Sabbath. It's not against the law to break the Sabbath, but it is against God's law to break the Sabbath. It, it's not against the law <laughs> to covet someone's property. In fact, I think in our culture, it's actually encouraged but it is against God's law. And if I called up the police and I said, um, excuse me, my children have seen some other children coveting some toys and uh, I'd like you guys to do something about it, nothing would happen because it's not against the law of our culture, but it is against the law of God. And so when Achan takes this, he's not really stealing. He's just disobeying the word of God. God said, don't take that, and he took that. It's that simple. If, if Achan was in any other culture, I'm sure this would have been no big deal at all. But because God said, do not take these things for yourself, and Achan took them, this was a problem. And so that's a preamble. We get that. If this was a movie, this would be, you know, the rest of this would be flashback. This is to help us understand what's actually going on here. And, and what then happens is the, the people, the warriors, go into battle unknowingly that someone within the camp has completely disobeyed what God has told them. And so as they go into battle, as they're going toward AI, or IE, sorry, I said the same thing. A lot of vowels in that. Um, as they're going into IE, they begin to get cocky. They begin to get overconfident. And Joshua, in vintage Joshua fashion, being the good military commander that he was and is, um, he says, we're going to scout this out. We're going to send some spies in like we always do. This is like the third time Joshua has sent spies ahead to get some uh, reconnaissance, to get some intel on what they're up against. And the people are actually getting pretty cocky. The warriors are getting cocky because they say, well, all we've got to do is send maybe two or 3,000 warriors. Now what you have to know about this is that um, there's calculated about 600,000 eligible warriors for battle. They would calculate eligible warriors, not eligible bachelors, eligible warriors as anyone of fighting age, like 18, 20 and over. And so were there 600,000 men in Israel that are capable of going into battle 
And, and the spies say, we only need a couple of thousand to knock these guys off. It's just this terrible, cocky attitude that says basically, well, if God did this in Jericho, then we can just do it however we want. Well, it ends really badly because as they go into Ai and they try and do battle, there's actually about 12,000 people all told in this city. And we find that in, in chapter 8, uh, verse, I, I think it's verse 29, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, no, it's, it's not there. Uh, but we do find that out that there is about 12,000 in Ai meaning they've completely underestimated the importance of listening to God's word, paying attention, finding out whether the community had actually obeyed God. So not only do they lose 36 men in battle before they even begin to retreat, but they retreat and their hearts are completely melted. This is interesting because it's the same phrase that's used earlier in this story that says when, when Canaan hears about how powerful Israel's God is, their hearts melt. And so what you have now is you have Israel's hearts going into Canaan and now because of this apparent defeat, their hearts are melting. This shouldn't be. This is confusing. And Joshua is mad. Joshua is furious. He actually talks to God and he says this, you know you're mad when you say alas, right? Alas, oh Lord God. Have you ever done that when you're angry at someone? Alas, I told you to pick that up, right? Thank you. That's a parenting tip for you. Alas, oh Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? This is Joshua's way of saying, what's up, God? I thought you were with us. You said that we should just obey you and go in to the, to the land and you would give us the victories. And, and what, what's the deal, God? What's the deal, God? What are you doing? Where are you? Like you said. And actually, this is one of my favorite parts. And I think we need to hear this sometimes, even though it's a hard word for us. Because the Lord says to Joshua in 7.10, Get up! Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? You know what the problem is? Israel has sinned. The problem is not I am not who I say I am. The problem is you have disobeyed me. I told you, as long as you listened to every word that I said, I would bring you into the land. Get up! You have no reason to be on the ground. Israel has sinned. And they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. Let me tell you, if, if God tells you to get up, here's my advice. Pay attention. Listen carefully to God. He is a patient, loving God who doesn't often scream. But in this instance, he says to Joshua, pay attention. Pay attention. And I think we need to even as we, as we hear this. And so Joshua says, okay, you're right, God. What should I do? And God says, here's what you do. Consecrate yourselves. That literally means like go through some ceremonial washing so that you're, you know, kind of ceremonial clean. Um, 
It was a way of getting ready for worship. It was, simp- it was it, in, in every way and shape and form, it would have been a lot like coming before a service, getting your heart wa- right, quieting yourself to hear from the Lord, that kind of thing. It was that way of doing it. it. was you know They went through washings to symbolize their cleanliness before God because no one who was unholy could, could enter into God's presence. And so he said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow you're going to find out the devoted things in your midst. Now, what is absolutely crazy about this is they had this process called casting lots. And it said the Lord will cast lots. There, the, scholars aren't really totally sure um, how they did this. Sometimes they did it with kind of spices. Sometimes they did it with straws. Sometimes they did it with something along the lines of dice. I know it sounds super spiritual, right? Throw a bunch of dice and, and see what happens. But literally... Picture this with me for a moment. There's three million people in Israel at the time and they're going to throw dice to see whose number comes up. And so they say, start with the tribes. There's 12 tribes. That's how they were divided up. Start with 12 tribes. And they had a 12-sided die roll and sure enough, Judah's number comes up. Then after Judah's number comes up, they, they divided each tribe into clans. And so let's, let's roll the dice again or however they did it, take straws and see which clan it is. And so sure enough, the clan that Achan was in comes up and then it says, no, 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 find out which dude this number comes up. Roll the dice again. Oh, it's Achan. Now think about the miracle here. It's how serious God is. He waited 430 years for an entire people group to repent, but he is so concerned about sin in his own people that he is willing to chase down one man who's been disobedient. And here comes the harder part. Okay, God, what do I do? There's sin in the camp. What shall we do? And he says, get up early in the morning. And burn everything that this person owns. And when they're done burning, take them outside of the camp and as a community, stone them to death. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds so awkward. I mean, I mean part of me just doesn't even know what to do with that. There's a large part of me that, that is just like, can we move on from this, God? Why, why would he do this? And I don't know every reason why he would do it. But I do know this. He's not ashamed of this. He's not ashamed of being this God. He leaves this in Scripture so that we get an idea of how serious disobeying God's Word actually is. Later on in Scripture, the Bible actually says the wages of sin is death. Now that sounds, maybe, maybe you've heard that a lot, maybe you've never heard that before, but I think in our minds when we hear the wages of sin is death, we go, well, not really death. Not, not real death, not death death. Just like soft death. Just like slow death. 
And I would say, I, I, I don't think so. And, and as we think about this, we can go all the way back to the beginning of the story of God when our first great-great-grandparents disobeyed God's word and God said, here's the curse, you're going to die. You will not live forever. I mean, spoiler alert, but I don't know when you're going to die, but you are going to die. Achan's day was this day. God chose to make an example of Achan, and I really think, and I'm grateful to God, A, that he didn't do that for my sin, because I really believe that I'm deserving of this as well, but do it to save many, many others from their sin. And God seems pleased to do this at times, to use particular people. I don't know why, but I do know that he seems pleased to use particular people as examples to warn others. This is a hard word. There should be no part of us that rejoices in this or takes this lightly. Joshua, understanding how serious this is, that you can't just simply go into battle for the Lord. You can't just be part of God's family and not obey his every word, says, okay, if that's what you've asked me to do, then I will do that. This wasn't an individual execution. This was a community execution. I, I can't imagine if that was the way we dealt with, with discipline in our church these days. Can you, can you imagine if, if that's the way we dealt with it? I mean, first of all, we'd probably go to prison. Well, what's amazing is even as I look at that, we're so far removed at that that it, it, it's just hard to comprehend. And I don't have all the answers. Except I do know that God is very serious about himself. And that he does not want us to take him lightly. And that he leaves these stories in Scripture so that we can seriously take him at his word. He doesn't always do this. There are many places in Scripture where he's completely gracious. Where he's completely patient, but not in this instance. And so God, uh, Joshua follows God at his word. He gets up early in the morning again. And after these people have died, he musters the people up and they continue going into battle, probably mourning over the loss of family members and saying, well, not one of these battles do we ever go in again without listening to God's every word. Not one of these battles do we not pay attention to our lives. You see, this is something interesting about what God does and who He is, is that as we talk so much here at Urban Grace about, about mission, about doing things for God, we, we must not forget that He is probably much more concerned about what He does inside of you than what He does through you. He is so less concerned about you winning battles for Him than He is about what happens in the camp. He is so less concerned about the good things you try to do for God than what your heart is actually like. He wants to help your heart. He does not simply want to use you to get a bigger kingdom. 
He does not want to just use you to make a bigger church. He wants to save you for you. So that once you're saved, then He actually can use you. But I think so often we get those things mixed up. We think that God will save us because we're useful. And we seem so, we seem to gloss over so much of what God wants to do in our lives. And so this story really talks so much about repentance. I think that's the theme. But if we're going to talk about repentance, we have to talk about sin. I know you guys were excited all day to come to talk about the heavy subject of sin. I know, all of you. I know you journaled about it. You texted me. Hey, Trav, can we, t- can we cover sin tonight, please? That'd be great. Just so you know, it's not my favorite topic either. And I think even for me, the, like I see myself in this, the temptation to, to, to shy away from texts like this because truthfully, I'm not really scared to preach, but I'm just scared of the text. I'm scared of what this actually means. I'm not afraid to get up in front of you guys. That's no problem. I'm afraid of the God behind the text. If he's really like that, I need some help. Because I'm in it with, with everyone. So let's talk about sin. What is sin? Well, essentially, you can break sin down to a, a simple... Um, it, it's not simple, but I'll simply say it like this. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral act, moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, so stuff that you do, stuff that you don't do, in attitude, so the stuff you think. <laughs> right, right there, we're, we're busted. Or nature, meaning something that's deep within inside us. So it's not just the acts that we do, but it's actually within our very nature. We shouldn't just understand that sin is something that we do by accident. Sin is something that we do because um, we mess up on one particular day that we're generally fairly good people and sometimes we have off days and so therefore we sin. We sin because there's something deeply wrong with us. We sin because there's something deeply wrong with us. So I want to talk about why do we sin? We sin because there's this deep disease within us that's, that's really been passed on to us by our great-grandparents consistently and constantly. And this is where we generally rebel. We don't like to think of ourselves as guilty people. We don't like to think of ourselves as people that... We, we like to think, you know, like Sarah McLaughlin says, we, we are born innocent. We, we love that... Well, maybe you don't love that music, but we love that idea. We love this idea that, oh, children are so innocent. And I say, you know what, I, I disagree with that because children are cute, but they're not innocent. My children are the cutest. Have you seen them? I mean, they're adorable. Ask me, I'll tell you. They're amazing kids. I love them to pieces. They are not innocent. We have a brand new baby, a couple of brand new babies in the house tonight. Those kids, the first moment they get, will disobey their parents. They will be self-centered. 
At three years old, they will still think of themselves before anyone else. Life will revolve around them. They don't need to be taught that. You don't have to teach my five-year-old how to deceive me. Like, I didn't have to sit down with her and go, now, if you want to pull the wool over dad's eyes, here's what you do. No, they, they figure that out actually really early. Like two or one, as soon as they possibly can. I know we don't love to talk this way about ourselves. But this is how the Bible describes us, is that we are born with this nature of rebellion within us. It's not simply acts of sin. It's actually, it's actually a nature within us. It's actually an attitude of our hearts. And here's what we try and do with sin so often. Imagine, with, if you can with me, that there's an, an, an apple tree. Okay, and you plant an apple tree. I know it's very difficult to imagine like a warm climate apple tree. I get that. Um, this is not the climate. But just hypothetically speaking, okay? Imagine we had a warm climate and you could grow apple trees. And imagine you planted that apple tree. And imagine that that apple tree represented sin. Okay? And so you don't want apples. You want oranges. But you planted an apple tree. And so your way of getting oranges was that you removed all the apples off the tree and then got a box of oranges and stapled these oranges onto the branches of that tree. Would you have an orange tree? No, you'd have a rotten orange tree in about three days. And you say, well, wait, wait a second. Well, what if, what, what if I take those oranges off and I put new oranges on? You'd still have oranges that would rot. I mean, it's a silly concept. What do you need to do to get oranges? You need to actually have a different tree. You can't have an apple tree. You need an orange tree. So you need to root that apple tree out and be given an orange tree that you can plant to make oranges. See, this is how we sometimes think about sin. We think sin is literally like apples on a tree. And as long as, as we remove all the apples or replace the apples with other things that nobody, especially God, will notice that we're just constantly producing apples. And God says, that's not how it works. You can do all, you, all the window dressing you want in the world, but what you need is me to cut this tree off at the root and plant a new tree. You need a new heart with a new nature that does not want to disobey me. That's why we sin. It's because right deep down in our roots we have a disease that needs to be fixed. And no amount of changing the fruit on the tree will fix this unless we get outside help. That's why we love Jesus. Because Jesus promised, if you believe I am who I say I am, I will not just help you produce oranges i I will plant a new tree inside of you i will make you a new creature this is where we get the word born again from this is where we get this new nature this is where we get this rebirth christianity is not simply changing some of your moral attitudes that's that's like stapling oranges onto your rotten apple tree christianity is we get new hearts that's why we sin. How do we sin? This is, 
I mean, some of this may be elementary for you, but it's very good for me. What I mean by that is, what is the Petri dish for this sin? And where does it really show up? It really shows up in our dissatisfaction. Every sin that I've ever committed and ever known has come from the fact that I have been dissatisfied. If you think about your own sin or your own disobedience, and again, some of you don't even know all of God's moral law yet. I'm not here to condemn you in any of that stuff. We've got to cover the basics before we even move on from there. But really, this is about dissatisfaction. And so we, we start out by simply being dissatisfied with what God has given to us right now. This is, this is what Achan did. What's amazing about Achan is that if Achan would have just waited, I don't even know what it was, days, weeks, a week, he, could have, he would have literally been given the opportunity to take the spoil from the next city. God, God freely gave them the opportunity once they had defeated Ai. He had, he had given them the opportunity to take the spoil. Now, now we look at that text and even go, Achan, like what? Like It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But if you look at it in, in chapter 7, verse 20, when Achan is found out, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I saw a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 20 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing, weighing 50 shekels and I coveted them and I took them. And if you translate that value into contemporary value, that particular group of items was worth a, a literally an average person's life, lifetime wage. So if you broke that up down in today's terms, let's just say you made an average of, of $35,000 per year over 40 years. That's $1.5 million that he just saw sitting there. So before we get all judgmental on how could Aiken do this, you can't tell me that if I said, one of you has $1.5 million under your seat, but don't touch it. There's not one of you that wouldn't kind of go, I'm listening, Trev. I'm listening, Trev. Totally. I'm listening, Trev. Where's that envelope? We'd all do it. I know we would all do it. Some of you are actually checking right now just to see if I'm telling the truth on this. But Aiken's looking at this and God said, don't. And I don't know why God did that exactly, but I do know that he was testing out to see what was in the hearts of the people and what was in Aiken's heart. Really, honestly, it's what's in all of our hearts when we don't have the heart of God. It's a heart that just wants what we want right now, when we want it. Think about all your sin, all of your struggles. Is it not taking into hands, first thinking, I really want that. That would be useful. I notice this when I go, how corrupt my heart is. I think I'm a pretty good person most time. And then I go to a mall. I happen to play for Team Estrogen, which means I have three girls in my family, okay? So we're always at malls, right? I'm always smelling candles in the house, right? I know Bath and Body Works. I even know exactly some of the scents in Bath and Body Works. Not because I purposely go there, but because that's what happens in, in, when you play for Team Estrogen. Now, I am amazed, even though when I go to a mall, that when I go, I didn't need anything, but when I arrive, I need everything. Ever notice that? Anyone? Anyone in that category? It's like, man, I needed nothing when I was at home just reading a book, and suddenly, 
how did they have everything that I need right there? It's right there. It's, it's uh, clearly like I need it. There's a big sign that says I need it. I need it. And that may be funny, but then that festers a bit. I say, maybe I do actually need it. I really want that. And if that's not dealt with properly, it's not long before I got to get it. And there are lots of times when I realize, wow, I didn't need that. And all of a sudden I have it because it starts in my corrupt heart of wanting something that God hasn't given to me right now. Not needing it, but just wanting something that God hasn't given to me. Taking it, taking it into my own hands. And I'm ashamed to say at times when really my budget doesn't allow for it. I I made a prior decision that I didn't need that. This is how sin works in our life. And what we need is a new heart. And so what do we do if we sin? Well, all of us are in this category. All of us are in this category. It's not one of us here. I don't know. I don't even, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how long you've lived. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian or not a Christian. All of us have sinned and will repeatedly sin. And if we have, here's what we do. We trust in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. Jesus said, I'll, I'll pay for it in one shot. One sacrifice for you. If you've disobeyed God, and we all have, I will, I will punish my very own son. I will take the punishment that belongs on your shoulders, and I will put it completely on his shoulders. And if you trust and believe who Jesus is, I will wipe your heart clean and give you a new heart that cross represents for us what should have happened to us that cross represents really i mean Achan's sin was was pretty common sin and even the punishment was fairly humane at the time i mean it doesn't sound humane but it was actually pretty humane considering at the time it was completed by community. This was not a humane death, what Jesus went through for us. He went through the death of a criminal. You didn't hang people on the cross just to execute them. You hung people on a cross to execute and embarrass them. When they executed women, they actually turned them around because they generally executed people naked. Just to add embarrassment. So you didn't just die publicly, you died nude. And there's a very good chance that Jesus died that way. Why did he do it? He did it because when he punished Achan, he said, I don't want to have to do this every time. I don't want to have to punish people. I want to be able to take care of this out of love. And so I will, I will do this. I will send my very own son. I will come as God and I will pay the price that is required. I will shed the blood that is needed in order to give the sacrifice needed. 
we want to end just simply by talking quickly through this whole idea of repentance. Some of you have heard this before. But I want to say repentance, that, that's what sin is. And, and Jesus, when He came on the scene, actually said, repent and believe the Gospel. What I just talked about in terms of the sacrifice of Jesus, that's really the Gospel. It's news that, that, that must be told and proclaimed. We have to establish that for you to understand what you are believing in. But repentance is not simply saying you're sorry. Some of us, we've either said sorry like this or we've watched kids on the playground say sorry like this. If you've, if you've ever seen that, right? Two people don't get along and one person says, all right, you're going to apologize to you and you're going to apologize to you. You're going to hug and then you're going to keep playing. And the one kid looks at the other kid and says, I'm sorry, you jerk. You're never playing with me again. All right, fine. That's good. That's a good apology. That's not an apology, is it? Some of us, maybe we haven't said it in that way, but we've apologized really flatly. We're not actually sorry. We're not actually that interested in change. We really just want to get someone off our back. I've been guilty of those kind of apologies where I'm not actually that sorry. I don't actually want to change all that much. I just simply want to stop this person from bothering me. Or I want to rebuild a friendship again. Repentance is not that kind of I'm sorry. Repentance involves an entire posture of life. If, if our problem really is that we have a deep disease that we need saving from, then, then we need to repent as in a complete posture. If you're not aware of what the word repent means, it literally means to turn around to turn 180 degrees. So if you're walking this direction and you repent, it means you do this. So if you're walking up the mountain and you come back down, you repent and you come back down the mountain. But when you come back, it's, it's, it's an attitude of walking, of posture. And what is the posture of someone who's repentant? It's humility. You cannot repent of your sin until you're truly humbled. You cannot be a proud person and repent. You cannot hold on to your way of your life, how exactly you want it, and actually repent. Repenting means, I am done choosing my own way. I choose your way, Jesus. And Jesus now owns not just your salvation. He owns your marriage. He owns your wallet. He owns your schedule. He owns your thoughts. He owns your heart. And he's interested in changing it. And it is a process that there is a sense in which He changes some things immediately and you have new, new loves. Like for instance, maybe you actually love to be around Christians finally. This is weird for you because you never wanted to be around Christians before and all of a sudden God changes your heart and you're like, hey, I actually want to go to church in an evening and listen to a guy talk for an hour. Like, I love this. I mean, that, you can only have that if God changes your heart. I remember one lady who she got saved and she's like, yeah, I got to be honest. When I, was, when I first came and before I was a Christian, I was like, are you seriously going to sit here and talk for 45 minutes? Like, is this for real? And then she said, and then I became a Christian. I was like, keep going. Keep talking. Keep, keep telling me that Jesus loves me. Keep telling me how I can repent. And I was like, only someone who's actually saved could, could go through that kind of transformation. And that's what repentance is. It's this turning, it's this posture change. 
It's I need to have that tree cut off at the root and I need a new tree. What else does repentance involve? I think it involves a plan. I go by this little thing called uh, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Anyone use that? Okay. Planning, if you're at all in management, is the key. But with a plan, you really, you got to write this plan down and you got to think through this plan. And so I think it's, this is not unspiritual for us to actually, as we turn, we're saying, okay, I've got to change some things in my life. So here's what I do. First of all, here's, here's, here's the plan. First of all, first part of the plan is repentance involves a change of heart. You need a change of heart before you can really repent. And if God tugs on your heart, like if you're hearing a message or you hear a song and something inside of you goes, I've got to deal with this. There's something I've got to do about this. That's the Holy Spirit of God tugging on your heart. If, you start to, if you're pulled away that you, you know is difficult and hard, but you know it's right, that really is the Holy Spirit of God in your heart. And so you need that in your plan. Don't make a plan for repentance without this because all you'll be doing is sticking oranges on your apple tree. Secondly, you ask for forgiveness for your sin. You say, Jesus, I am caught in this. I am stuck in this. I need some help. Please forgive me for what I have done. Please forgive me. At this point, you'll find out whether it's genuine or not because you won't move on to the next step if it's not really that genuine. Thirdly, you make the decision to do things differently. God, I failed terribly. Your standard. I need to change something in my life. What do I need to change, God? Somehow bring someone into my life. Have someone say something. Holy Spirit of God, come in this miraculous power and just tell me what I need to do. I journal this stuff out all the time. Jesus, help me figure out what I need to do about this. And it's amazing how good Jesus is to answer my prayer. Fourthly, make that plan for holiness that has to be fueled by the Holy Spirit of God. The gift that God gives to us when He changes our hearts is He gives us His Spirit. That's what I'm really talking about when I say we get this new, literally this new tree within us. Is we get like this different, that we get the very Spirit of Jesus within us. That Jesus promised, I will put my very essence inside of you so that you love the things that I love and you hate the things that I hate and you want to do the things that I do and you want to love the people that I love. And as you make the plan, ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, even if you don't know who He is, Holy Spirit, will You help me to obey You? I don't want to, but I need Your help. Fifthly, follow through on that plan. Follow through on that plan. That's why I say write it down and you'll see very quickly whether or not the Holy Spirit is at work in your life at all. Review that plan. Where am I at? What's God doing in my life? Have I been confessing my sin? Is this getting rooted out of my system? Is this particular part of my life producing the wrong kind of fruit still? Find someone who will help you with this. Step number six is repeat steps one through six. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, right? I know it sounds very simple, but I think it's so helpful. And lastly, as we close, repentance involves community. Repentance involves community. I think one of the largest mistakes we make at Christians 
is thinking we can do this by ourselves, just us and God. We're, too, we're either too embarrassed of our sin, we're either too isolated from people, we don't trust people, and I, I, I get all those things. That's why this will require you doing some work of perhaps building some relationships of people that you trust. Absolutely, that's what it means. But just so you know, this is exactly why we develop city groups and we really don't want to put a lot of programs into our church because we don't want any programs to interfere with the building up of community. We believe it's that important that you need relationships to grow spiritually. Let me just, maybe I'm the first person to say that to you, but I don't think you can live your Christian life and grow without community. You know why I believe that? Because Jesus designed it to help you and me it is consistently helpful for me consistently brings accountability james 5 16 literally says therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed confess your sins to one another not anonymously not to just anyone but to one another people that love you People that you trust. How are you going to get there? Well, you got your work cut out for you. We started it by saying city groups. This is a great place to start. The, the, you, you can't depend on community like you can depend on Jesus and they will hurt you and it will get frustrating at times. I get all that. Some of you are actually here or haven't been to church for a while because you actually have been hurt by people that you trusted. But this is not a reason to hold back. Because the reason why you were hurt is because you are trying to battle your sin with someone else who is also trying to battle their sin. Someone who is also broken. When you do marriage counseling, one of the books I recommend is When Two Sinners Say I Do. (laughs) Meaning when two people who sin badly get together, it could be chaos without Jesus. So let me encourage you again, if you're, if you're running from community, if you're running from friends that want to help you, I would say you can't really enter the repentance, pro- the repentance plan properly without community. Without community. As we close, and I'll even invite the band up now if they want to come up. We always end by saying we, we celebrate this every week. We say celebrate because it is good news that the heavy penalty of sin has already been paid. I mean, it's good news. It's good news. Because the penalty that was on Achan never has to be on you. God chose to put it on His only Son and it's represented here the, the bread here represents the flesh of Jesus, meaning that He actually came. This isn't a myth. This isn't a story that's in the iCloud that we believe. This isn't something that's been passed on in history. He actually came to this earth and He actually did what He did and He actually hung on a cross and He actually lived a life like you and me and He actually paid the price. And how do we know He paid the price? Because He shed blood and that's represented in the wine and the juice here. And so we want you to partake of this because this represents your belief and your trust in what Jesus has done for you. 
if you're not a Christian here this evening, we would say, um, we, we wouldn't really say it like this, that this isn't for you. We would say this won't mean much to you. But if you're not a Christian tonight, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, in your place, for your sins, friend, what's holding you back? What would hold you back? If you do believe in that, you can partake with us as a family. And the, the band's going to lead us through a number of songs, and, and I guess S Steve can say more about this if he wants, but some of them are a little heavy. All of them are loud. This is Urban Grace. They've got to be loud. But some of them you may struggle with even in ter terms of singing, but here's what they're trying to help you do. They're just trying to reconcile with the enormous debt that has been paid in your place. And I, for one, some of these songs, it's just good to listen to the song and hear the goodness of what Jesus has done. So with that, I'll invite the band to play and for you to come and partake when you feel ready to take of communion.